The sermon scripture text is found um, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through the entirety of chapter 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Yet he gave no inheritance, gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had, brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, father's daughter adop or Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I will come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations so that, that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is, this what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of, the God, of God. But they cried out with a voice, with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's open up the word of prayer. Spirit of God, we ask that you will speak to us in whatever way you desire. May all of the distractions of our life fade away. May we know that we read the very words our Father have written to us. We ask that you will do the work that needs to be done in our hearts, that we might be like our Lord. And we pray this in his beautiful and glorious name. Amen. I recently finished a biography of Francis Asbury. I started that um, when the um, spiritual awakening that happened at Asbury University in February, uh, when that began, um, Asbury University is named after a man named Francis Asbury. And I realized I didn't know anything about this man, and I was just curious, and um, so I began reading this biography. And, and you may not know a whole lot about Francis Asbury either, but the biography was fascinating and profound and inspiring and convicting, all, all wrapped up into one. Francis Asbury was born in England. Uh, he became, he was born, um, he was uh, originally a, a blacksmith apprentice. So he wasn't born into money. He was just a normal, uh, you know, blacksmith apprentice in the country of England. But he became a Christian through a Methodist meeting. And um, as he grew in his faith, he left his blacksmith trade, became a circuit rider in the Methodist church in England. And then John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism, he sent Francis Asbury to America to help with the Methodist churches in America. Francis arrived in America shortly before the Revolutionary War, and he eventually became the first bishop of the Methodist Church of America, the, the, the main leader. When he came to America, Methodists were around 1,000 total. There were about 1,000 Methodists in all the colonies. By the time he died, 1816, there were a little over 150,000 Methodists, with millions more who were attending the Methodist meetings, just hadn't joined the Methodist Church yet. And you've got to look at that. How do you go from a little over 1,000 to 40 years later, 150,000 and growing. Phenomenal, astounding growth. How's that happen? Well, of course, we don't want to blaspheme. It's God's hand. Only God can do that kind of work. Uh, only God can change the leopard spots and melt the heart of stone. But as I've said before, we don't want to over-spiritualize this as well as if because it's God, therefore, there can be no other factors involved and God doesn't work through other means. And 
One of the factors, certainly, why the Methodist church saw such astounding growth and power and vitality is that the first generation of Methodist preachers and leaders were men who gave themselves body and soul to Jesus Christ and to the preaching of his gospel. Amazing dedication and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Francis Asbury himself, uh, unbelievable work ethic, relentless labor. He, uh, he traveled over 10,000 miles a year on horseback through the bad, you know, backcountry trails. These are not like nice paths. 40 years into his, I mean, he died in the 70s. Well, you know, unbelievable, relentless work ethic. He, he took on voluntary poverty, although he like led a church of 150,000. He never owned a house, he never owned property. He owned one horse, he owned two sets of clothing, a few books, his Bible, and he was paid literally a poverty wage by his own decision. Sometimes he wouldn't, he would run out of money before the end of the year and he'd have to ask like the circuit riders who were in his church for loans so that he could make it to the next town he was going to. Unbelievable, and all this was out of his dedication to Jesus Christ. Further, when the Methodists began, they were this persecuted little minority, people saw them as fanatics. The church in America, Revolutionary War era, was incredibly lukewarm. Congregational churches had fallen from their height. The Episcopal church was dead. And so they viewed these Methodists as these crazy backwater fanatics who, who wanted an actual experience of God's grace. They weren't satisfied with kind of calm, cool, collected sermons, but no, they wanted to experience Jesus Christ. And so they viewed Methodists as crazy people. And then when the war broke out, it put the Methodist church in a weird position because Methodism was birthed out of the Church of England. And so there's a Methodist church in England and a Methodist church in America, and they were sister churches, they partnered. And during the Revolutionary War, because we were fighting the British, there was actually, uh, the, the colonial powers required churches to make an oath to say that they were pledging allegiance to the colonies and to renounce any connection to, to Britain. And the Methodist church Asbury wouldn't do that because it would have renounced, it would have involved renouncing their fellowship with their brothers and sisters in the Methodist Church in Britain. So now, not only were they fanatics, but the Methodist Church were traitors. And people began to mob them. If you were a circuit rider, a Methodist circuit rider, it could lead to physical violence. So, for instance, one Methodist circuit rider named Philip Gatch around the Revolutionary War was, um, was attacked by a mob in Baltimore, and they literally tarred him. They poured boiling tar over his body so that he lost one of his eyes. And what did Philip Gatch do after that? Well, he kept preaching the gospel with one eye. Uh, a year later, same man, Philip Gatch, who was traveling through New Jersey, two men jumped him, pulled him off his horse, beat him unconscious, and dislocated both his shoulders. What did he do? He kept preaching the gospel. Do we, do we wonder why when someone like Philip Gatch showed up, people wanted to hear what he had to say? Why when he would preach bearing the, the scars from the tar, why his words would land with power? These were the first Methodists. You know, as I was, as I was reading this, I just couldn't, I mean, you read the faith of those individuals and you realize, like, what have I given up? 
to follow Jesus. Nothing. You realize, like, you know, what do we revere in our evangelical world? We revere you know, men and women who talk pretty and write pretty things. And, you know, oh, this person's such a great preacher, this person's such a great writer, it warms my heart. And I just can't help but think we just, we don't deserve to kiss the shadows, the dust on the feet of these men who gave so much. And no wonder we're so lukewarm often in our churches because we value how a person talks more than the power of their lives. This morning, we're going to see where some of the explosive growth of the early church came from, where some of the vitality of this early church came from. And, and we have, again, we have to be very clear. Where did it come from? It came from Acts 2, Pentecost. The Spirit of God was poured out on very ordinary people, people like you and me, who then went on to do pretty extraordinary things because they were transformed in the deepest parts of their lives by the Spirit of God who empowered them and gave them courage beyond their natural abilities. And who, just like with those circuit riders, when they faced persecution, when they faced the murder of one of their church leaders, Stephen, not only did it not quench this early church, but it, was, it just poured gasoline on this flame. So that the church bursts out of Jerusalem and moves across the Mediterranean world like a wave until it gets all the way to Rome. And it was because, at least in part, Christians like Stephen literally gave their all in service to this King Jesus. Our story this morning, you know, from a 30,000-foot perspective, there's two things we want to say about it. One, the way it functions in the story of Acts, we're at a turning point in, in the book of Acts. Uh, the church has been primarily in Jerusalem, it's where everything's been happening. It's where the apostles are preaching. It's where people are coming to faith. And now that chapter is coming to a close, and we're going to move away from Jerusalem, and the church is going to go out into the rest of Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Because if you remember, Jesus had given a mission, Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, but in Judea, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's about to happen. The church is about to be sent out on that worldwide mission. And so part of what this story of Stephen is doing is preparing the church for that, preparing them to step out into that worldwide mission that their Lord and Savior had called them to. But the second thing is that Stephen stands as a witness to every Christian who has existed since to look at his life and testimony and to ask ourselves, does my faith look anything like Stephen's? It's very likely that none of us in this room will give our physical lives for Christ. Maybe, but most of us probably won't. But I think Stephen would rejoice in heaven, will rejoice in heaven, if his example can lead some of us to living for Christ with all our breath. To live for the Christ whom Stephen was willing to die for. We're looking at scripture like we do every Sunday. And so we are standing on holy ground. And I, just, I, feel, I feel that weight, especially this morning, because we're looking at the shedding of the blood of one of our brothers in Christ. And we're given an extraordinary privilege to see the final moments of his life 
as we go through this morning and we look at this story, what is the Spirit of God trying to say to you? Whatever he says, do it. Wherever he calls you, go. Our outline for us this morning. First point is the accusations. Second point is Stephen's response. Third point is a good death. So first point, the accusations. Let's look at chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. Let me read it for us again. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is not the first time we've seen Stephen. If you remember from last week, we were introduced to Stephen then because he was one of the seven who was called to the diaconate ministry. Stephen was a remarkable man. You know, when, it, when, when it calls these seven men to assist in the ministry to the widows, it, it lists all the names except for Stephen. He's the only one who gets a description. It says, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then here again in verse 8, it says, Stephen, a man full of grace and power. The two characteristics that rarely go together. Um, as the great British preacher Morgan Campbell once said, it's a sweetness and strength merged into the same personality. You know, oftentimes you're either Max Licato, very sweet and kind, or you're John Piper, very powerful. Stephen did both somehow. And his preaching is marked by wonders and signs, by miracles. He's the first non-apostle to do miracles in, in Acts. And he's one of the only non-apostles to ever do miracles. Typically, it's the apostles who have these miraculous gifts. Preaching is attended by this miraculous power. And he's a deacon. You know, when I pray for our deacons, I pray that it'll be like Stephen. This is a man to emulate. Some of you will one day perhaps serve as deacons in this church. Let Stephen give you a vision for a faithful and a, and, a, and a spiritually vibrant and full of fire vision of what the diaconate is. And lastly, he preaches. He's a deacon, but he preaches. That's interesting. You know, I argued last week that God had called uh, the office of pastor and office of deacon are both offices of service. Office of pastoring is a unique call into word and prayer to lead, feed, and protect. But here we see a deacon teaching. And so I don't think that's supposed to be exclusively a pastoral role. I think other members in the church can lead and feed and protect. 
just a side note. But this Stephen, this deacon of the church, minister of Jesus Christ, faces opposition. And it's opposition from the synagogue of the freedmen. Interestingly enough, that, w- that would have been a synagogue full of people who were former slaves. Interesting. I don't know anything else about it, but they would have been men and women who either, were, who either bought their freedom or were freed by their masters. And none of them are from Palestine. They're from places like you know, modern-day Turkey, Egypt, uh, northern Africa, other places. But these people, you know, these, these, these foreigners, Greek-speaking Jews, Jews, all former slaves, when they hear Stephen's preaching, they don't like it, and they begin to oppose him. And so first they tried to beat him. You know, they think they can go head-to-head with Stephen, and then they can prove from the scriptures that what he's saying about this Jesus is wrong. They clearly have under or, 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 or um, underestimated Stephen's understanding of the scripture, and more importantly, they've underestimated the spirit that speaks through Stephen. And so they're not able to withstand his words. And this is what Jesus had told his disciples in Luke 21, 15. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So when they can't beat him in debate, what do they do? Well, you know, if they go high, we're going low. They move on to a smear campaign. They instigate men to, you know, bring false charges. There may be a suggestion there of bribery. It's not clear, but it's clear this is an underhanded move. This is backroom dealing. And they bring these charges and these accusations. This is verses 13 and 14. The accusations they bring up, again, they, they set up false witnesses. Again, these are false accusations. They said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, against the temple, and against the law. And those are serious accusations. Um, for a Jew, those are the two most holy things in their life. The temple was a place where God had promised his presence would be found. The law was God's revelation of his will and his desires for people. To speak against the temple and against the law would be to speak against God himself. Serious accusations. And this is why, and this is interesting, this is why we, 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 we see a turning point again in the book of Acts because the people now turn against the Christians. Up until this point, there's been opposition, but it's mostly been the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the priests, the high priests. And in fact, the, the people have restrained the leaders from being able to kind of take out the Christians because the people like the Christians. They see what they're doing. They're intrigued by their message. But here for the first time, the synagogue of the freedmen, they're able to stir up the people themselves against the Christians. Again, this is a turning point. The people leave Jerusalem, where the Christians leave. That chapter is coming to a close. But this is the accusations that he, Stephen's speaking against the temple and against the law. Let's move on to our second point, which is Stephen's response. I'm not going to read all of chapter 7 again. Don't worry. But I will reference it at various parts. You know, when you're, when you're, um, when you're reading through it, it, it may just be like, okay, Stephen, what are you doing? You're giving this long story. Why are you retelling the history of Israel? We know it. Certainly the audience would have known it. And from one perspective, what Stephen is doing is he's, he's been accused of heresy, speaking blasphemy. And so how does he respond? Well, one of the ways he responds is he gives a very orthodox retelling of God's work among Israel. It's like, hey, these are my, these are my orthodox you know, credentials. I preach, the God, I, I preach what's true. You know, that's, that's part of what Stephen is doing. 
But he's also doing something very subtle and very profound. And, and, and it's subtle. So try to hang with me here. He lays the foundations in this sermon for three important truths about the gospel. Truths that he doesn't explicitly say because he has a crowd who's already angry at him. Sometimes, I'm not very good at this, sometimes directness is not the best way of communicating. When people already disagree with you, sometimes it's better to kind of come at it from the side. And so Stephen's trying to create foundations that kind of incline people to be able to be ready to embrace three different truths, okay? First truth is that the temple was never meant to be permanent. The second truth is that the law was never meant to be permanent. And the third truth is that Israel and they need salvation. Those are going to be the three truths we're going to look at here. But again, he's never going to argue them explicitly. That's why this is a little bit subtle. But he's going to lay foundations to understand them. Again, first, the temple was not meant to be permanent. In other words, God's presence is not intrinsically and forever tied to the temple. And he does this by, by uh, well, let me back up, sorry. So he, God's presence is not tied to the temple. And it's interesting, the full accusation against Stephen is not that the temple will be destroyed, but that Jesus will destroy this temple. Which is very similar to accusations that Jesus had leveled against him when he was in his earthly ministry. Remember, part of the accusations when he was on his trial was that this man says he's going to destroy the temple. And here they're saying the same thing about his followers. And what they're referring to, there are times when Jesus says some interesting things about the temple. So for instance, in the Gospel of John chapter 2, Jesus has this interaction with the Jews, and it would have been the Jewish leaders. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus says, look, this temple is going to be destroyed, but it's going to be raised up again in three days. And they think, again, he's referring only about the temple, but he's referring about his own body. And what Jesus is saying is this temple is not permanent, and it's going to be replaced, and it's going to be replaced by Jesus himself. His body is going to be the temple. What does that mean? Again, the temple was the place of God's presence in the Old Testament. Where is God? He's in the temple. You want to pray to God? Face the temple. You can be in exile, and the temple can be destroyed, and still Daniel would pray facing the temple. That's where God's presence was. But now Jesus has replaced the temple, which means where is God's presence in this world? It's wherever Jesus is, specifically wherever his body is, which is the church. Where is God's presence? It's, it's, it's where Christians gather together. So that's what, that's what Jesus had been teaching. That's what Stephen had been che- teaching. But what, what, why do the Jews get upset here? Well, it's because Stephen is calling out a sacred cow. Do you know that term, a sacred cow? So a sacred cow is something in a community that's revered, idolized, to the point where if you speak against it, like, no, 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 no. It's not going to go off you. Touch not the sacred cows, lest ye be smote. And this is what Stephen's doing. The temple had become a kind of sacred cow in the history of Israel at this point. 
Whereas, you know, to the point where all the Hellenist Jews had to do was accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple and the people are in a fury. How dare you speak against the temple? God's presence resided in the temple because God said it would, not because there's anything special about the temple itself. And at this time, the temple was glorious. It was a wonder of the world. I mean, the, the Jews took pride in their temple for a reason. It was beautiful, covered in gold, marble. I mean, just an architectural wonder. But it had become a sacred cow. And so the way that Stephen kind of lays the foundation for this truth that the temple was always meant to be temporary because it's replaced by Christ is he points out God's work and presence both before the temple was ever built and his work and presence outside the land of Israel. God is so far from being confined to this one location. Hey, by the way, he worked for 2,000 years or 1,000 years before the temple was built. Hey, by the way, he worked in places not just outside the temple, but outside the land of Israel. So look at, look, you know, he tells us history. Again, he's very intentional. In, in chapter two, sorry, chapter seven, verse two, he starts with Abraham. The God of glory appeared. God was present to our father Abraham. Where? In the land of Mesopotamia, Iraq. God was present in Iraq, 2000 BC. Move on to verse, uh, verse 9. The patriarchs, they sell Joseph into, into Egypt. Again, a pagan land away from the promised land. It says, but God was with him. God was present in Egypt, working in Egypt, rescuing Joseph. In verse 30, when uh, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, that story we're all very familiar with, where did that happen? It happened in the wilderness of Mount Sinai outside the promised land, well before the temple was ever built. God is active and present and working. And, and really importantly, verse 33, and the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That's temple language, folks. And this is some barren patch of sand in the Sinai wilderness is the temple of God because God's presence is there. You see what he's doing? He's like, look, God... The temple was never necessary. God was at work in all kinds of places, and therefore Stephen can conclude in verse 48, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. Again, the whole point here, the Stephen, you see how he's being so subtle? He's not making the argument, but he's laying the foundation for the Jews to be able to say, oh, the temple was never the point. It was never meant to be permanent. God worked before the temple existed. He does not need the temple. And by the way, he will work after the temple is gone. Again, Stephen isn't denigrating the temple, but what he is doing is he's calling out their sacred cows because Jesus has replaced the temple. We all have a tendency towards developing sacred cows when it comes to our faith. And typically the way this works is that there is some kind of program or ministry or some kind of singing or something about how Christianity was done and God used it to save us and to open our eyes to the grace of God. And it was wonderful. Praise God. But then we begin to think that, well, we begin to trust more in, in those means that God used, in that ministry type, in that type of singing, in that building. We begin to trust more in that than in the living God himself. That's how things become sacred cows. And at the end of the day, Israel went wrong because they were unwilling to kill their sacred cows. 
They put all their trust no longer in the living God, but in the temple. So here's a question for us, church. Are we willing, if it's necessary, to kill our own sacred cows? What's negotiable for you? What's not negotiable? We should all have things that are not negotiable, by the way. Matters pertaining to truth. Who is Jesus? Salvation. The gospel. But when it comes to more practical matters of how church is done, are there, are there, are there things that are negotiable for you or things that are just not negotiable? Only one thing is necessary, and that is Jesus himself. And Jesus has told us that he will work in two ways, by his word and by his spirit. And he does that in different contexts, in different cultural contexts, in different time periods, in different ways. And so the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters, if we have the Bible, each other, and we pray, we got everything we need. Everything can be taken from us. But if we have the scriptures, we're together and we pray. That's all we need. So you can see, again, Stephen is artfully and skillfully kind of laying this foundation for the Jews to see that the temple was not meant to be permanent, but it's replaced by Jesus. And now where Jesus is, that is the temple. That is the presence of God. So that's the first truth he's, he's laying the foundation for, that the, the temple was never meant to be permanent, but it was replaced by Jesus himself. The second truth is that the law was not meant to be permanent. Again, they're, they're accusing Stephen of speaking against the temple and against the law. And once again, Stephen seems to be walking in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior, Jesus, because Jesus was accused of disregarding the law, right? The Pharisees often get upset at Jesus for seeming to break the Sabbath and therefore for disregarding the law. And it seems pretty clear that this must have been a common accusation because Jesus actually addresses it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he wouldn't need to say that unless people were saying that he, had, that he was saying he was abolishing the law. He's like, no, 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 I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill them. The law was never meant to be permanent because Christ fulfills the law. Now, Christians have debated throughout the centuries how does the Old Testament and the New Testament cohere together, and there's, there's room for disagreement. But one thing we can all agree on is that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's very clear. The most basic question for humans that we have to answer is, is what do we do with sin? What do we do with our guilt? It's the one facet of human experience that breaks all barriers, all divisions. Rich people are sinners. Poor people are sinners. People in the West are sinners. People in the East are sinners. Black people are sinners. White people are sinners. Asian, Hispanic. What do we do with the fact that there, we all know in a deep way within us that we don't measure up? We've done bad things. There's something wrong within us. And we have to answer to God for that. What do we do with that? Well, the law was a temporary answer for that. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a temporary and partial solution to the problem of pain. These animals could die and offer a partial forgiveness and cleansing of sin for the people of Israel. 
But Jesus Christ fulfilled that because he himself was a sacrifice offered for us once and for all. And his blood is enough to cover every sin, to cleanse us of every stain. It's enough for sins that we've done in the past. It's enough for sins you're engaging in right now. And it's enough for sins you might do in the future. Jesus fulfilled the law. He never spoke against it. The law was never meant to be the final answer. It's this, it was always a partial answer to the problem of sin, but Jesus came and he fulfilled that. And again, Stephen is, is kind of laying the groundwork for this truth when he says in verse 37, he says, this is the Moses. Again, Moses is the one who gave the law. This is the Moses, uh, lost my place, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses was a prophet because he brought the law. That's why Moses was important. He was the one through whom God gave the law to Israel. But Moses is saying there's going to come another prophet later, which means there's going to come another prophet who will bring another law. Get the logic here? Which means that first law given by Moses was never meant to be permanent because another prophet was coming who's going to be greater, who's going to give a far greater law. That's exactly what Paul gets at when he says Jesus Christ, he brought a new law, not a law of righteousness by works, which is a burden none of us can bear. Be by law of grace. Not a law of personal righteousness that we earn by our effort, but a law of God's righteousness that he gives to us freely by grace through faith. Jesus brought a law that gives life. The old law in the end was meant to push us to realize we can never achieve this on our own, to open us to the, our need of salvation in Christ came in. And he gives us that law that leads to life. So again, the law was never meant to be permanent, and Stephen is trying to kind of lay these foundations for them to be able to see, oh, okay, the law wasn't meant to be permanent, so what was supposed to come? Well, Jesus, he was supposed to come. And the third truth that Stephen doesn't so much lay the foundation for is just preach it straight. This is where I, I, I uh, jive with Stephen He's just like, Israel's need of salvation and therefore his hearer's need of salvation. The whole time he's going through, he's telling this history of Israel in a way to show that, hey, the history of Israel is not a history of these godly saints faithfully following God, but it's the history of people who resisted the Holy Spirit, who rebelled against God, who were hard-hearted again and again and again and again. In verse nine, it says the patriarchs, oh, the patriarchs, they were the founding fathers of Judaism. Don't speak badly about the patriarchs. It says they were jealous of Joseph and they sold him to slavery. They were petty just like we are. All right, uh, in, in verse uh, 27, the first time God sends Moses as a deliverer to Israel, they reject him. The man who is wronging his neighbor thrust him inside. He's speaking to Moses. Who made you ruler and judge over us? And they, Jews are like, we love Moses. Yeah, but the people in Moses, the Israelites in Moses' day rejected him the first time. And then they rejected him a second time. In verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. It's like, Israelites rejected Moses the first time. And then he came again, they rejected him a second time. And then when they were in the wilderness, they weren't having this like extended revival service. 
They're worshiping demons. Did you bring me, verse 42, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon, false gods who very likely had demonic presences behind them. Israel needed a savior. That's his whole point. History of God's people is history of people who are broken and needed a savior. And then he says, by the way, you're the same way. And this is where we get to verses 51 to 53, which is just, man, singes. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so, oh yeah, you make a lot about how great the law is, but you murdered the righteous one. This whole point is Israel needed salvation and so do you. Again, Stephen is trying to lay a foundation for understanding three important truths that Jesus replaced the temple, where his body is is now where the presence of God is, that he fulfilled the law, he offers salvation as once and for all, and that people need salvation. Part of this was for the original hearers who were, who were hearing him, but again, part of this also is trying to prepare the church for the worldwide mission that they're about to enter into in chapters eight, nine, and 10. And how, how, how did this message prepare the church for mission? Okay, well, let's take them in reverse order. People need salvation. Israel was not the only ones who were broken and rebelling against God. Everyone has sinned and fallen short. The world needs salvation. This is the driving force behind the gospel witness as it went out. It was because people need to hear, people need to be saved. Second, Jesus fulfilled the law, not just for Jews, but for anyone. He was the one-time sacrifice for any who will come to him in humbleness and repentance, Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female. Not only does the world need salvation, but the solution is in Jesus. That's the impetus for mission. That's why people go out and then lastly, Jesus replaced the temple. God's presence is not found in a physical place anymore, but it's found where God's people are. And so as the church goes out, they're not going away from God's presence, but God's presence is with them. That truth is central for mission, okay? Uh, unless we believe that the risen Jesus Christ goes with us, why would we ever leave lives that are comfortable? Why would we ever leave family and friends? Unless we knew that the risen Jesus Christ is going with us, and if he goes with us, where else would he rather be than in the center of his will? This is Stephen's response. He's not blaspheming at all. Jesus has replaced the temple. 
He has fulfilled the law. And his hearers desperately need to repent and receive God's salvation. Unfortunately, his hearers were not all that interested in what he had to say. And in fact, they don't even let him finish, but they drag him off and they kill him. And we have the first Christian martyrdom in our text this morning. And in this, we also see what makes for a good death. This brings us to our third point, a good death. And I want to read verses 54 to 60 for us. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, And they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is one of those passages that you just want to read and, and just be silent. As a Protestant, I obviously don't hold to the idea of saints as if there's different levels of Christians, but Stephen was a holy man. And this is holy ground. And it's an example of what a good death looks like. And the reason why this is a good death is not because of the violence that Stephen endured. This is a good death because Stephen was so full of Jesus until the very end. What's so interesting is in the midst of all this chaos and this violence, Stephen only has eyes for Jesus. And the last last breaths that he utters, the last words that he utters are prayers to Jesus. Look at this. In verse 55, he has a vision of Jesus. And he's surrounded by a crowd who are like grinding their teeth. They're so angry at him. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's a couple things going on in that vision. First, Jesus is affirming what Stephen has just said. Stephen has borne witness to Jesus that he replaces the temple, that he fulfilled the law, that there's salvation in his name. And Jesus is, is a, basically, this is affirming Stephen, you have spoken rightly. As F.F. F. Bruce writes, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. And now Jesus confesses Stephen before the Father. Isn't that the goal? That we'll live our life in such a way that when we stand before Jesus, he'll say, he's mine, or she's mine. It's a good death. But secondly, beautifully, our Jesus is beautiful, he just is. Jesus is welcoming Stephen home. He's saying, Stephen, you're coming home. 
He gives him this hope as he's about to go through a brutal death. Christ is so merciful. And as they're stoning Stephen to death, I mean, this is a brutal scene. Rocks are crushing his soul, his body. I mean, he, he died because people threw rocks at him until he stopped breathing. And in the midst of that, he utters these two prayers to Jesus. This is amazing. He says, 59, he doesn't cry out and curse the people around him. He says, Jesus, receive my spirit. He's got thoughts for one person. He's just, he's so full of Jesus. This, the last breaths that come out, and then verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It makes me think of a David Livingston quote. It's an entry from his journal shortly before he died. The great David Livingston was a medical uh, 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 missionary doctor in Africa for 30 years, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with more Africans than most missionaries could dream of. And he died in Africa. He died away from family and friends. He's British. He died among the people he gave his lives to reach. And towards the end of his life, he wrote this in his journal. This is shortly before he died. It's March 19th, 1872. Birthday. It's his birthday. My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. Accept me and grant, O gracious Father, that before this year is gone, I may finish my task. In Jesus' name I ask it, amen. It's a man in his 70s, rededicating his life full of Jesus to the end. Again, what is a good death? It's, being, it's living in such a way that we are full of Jesus to the very end, to our last breath. Stephen, we would probably look at Stephen and say that was not a good death. He didn't die surrounded by his friends and his family. He didn't die in a soft bed with music in the background. He died surrounded by enemies. He died at the hands of his enemies. The last words Stephen heard were curses of those who hated him. And yet it was a good death because he was so full of Jesus up to his last breath. How do you, how do, you do that? Be full of Jesus now. Walk with Jesus now. Listen to his voice. Obey his commands. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Some of you may not be here next year. Some of you have 80 years to live. You've got to navigate in this world before you can go home. How do, you, how do you live? How do you die well? Be full of Jesus now. Make it your deepest goal to live such a life, to live in such a way that up until your very dying breath, you're just full of Jesus. I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon I want you to be asking, what is the Spirit of God speaking to you? And I want to bring that back. What is God speaking to you? What is His Spirit saying to you?
Whatever it is, do it. Let's pray. Christ, I, 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 I feel like I do not deserve to even preach on Stephen. For I have given up so little in comparison. But I want to be full of you in the way that, Jesus, in the way that Stephen was. I just, I want my life to overflow with the Jesus I love. And I pray that for the people that you have blessed me with to shepherd. And may everyone in this room give their life to Christ completely unreservedly with no insurance policies. Christ, may they be full of you May they walk with you and hear your voice and go where you send them. We ask you to do this by your Spirit's power. Amen.